ever imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light? Total protonic reversal. Protonic reversal. Protonic reversal with your host, Conan Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rocking about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though... If you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with sharp and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It's That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed it is. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It is a scientific fact. And we are all up in your face. It is time for the one, the only, Protonic Reversal. Welcome to it, welcome to it, welcome to it. Legendary guest tonight. I'm just, I could not be more excited. One of my favorite bands of all time, Hugo Burnham of Gang of Four. Really, really excited for this. Uh, I'm going to do a thing I probably should have been doing for the last 248 episodes. And uh, if this is your first time, this maybe won't seem as weird as for long-time listeners or for me, but here we go. Conan Neutron's Protonic Reversal is a long-running podcast about music and musicians. This is episode 249. If this is your first time listening to the show, all the archives are at ProtonicReversal.com and are always free. No ads, no sponsors, no kidding. If you'd like to support the show or get episodes sooner, you can give a dollar a month to Patreon.com slash ProtonicReversal. And if you like the show or even just a single episode, please feel free to share it along, like, subscribe, post a review, all that helps people find the show, and it's just a darn nice thing to do. So I haven't been doing that at the beginning of the show pretty much since it started. I kind of save it to the end. What I notice is people tend to uh, stop the second after the interview is done. <laughs> so whether it's your first time with the show or your 249th time, uh, thank you so much for listening. And absolutely positively cannot wait to present the drummer for one of my favorite bands of all time, Gang of Four, Hugo Burnham. Let's get to it, boppers. And I'd like to welcome the show now, none other than Mr. Hugo Burnham. Welcome to the show, Hugo. Uh, thank you, Conan. Lovely to be here. It's so great or to there, be talking to you. Or wherever we are, in the <laughs> ether, he said, making a pun. Out, out in the internet where we all now live. Uh, yeah. I, I'm going to start off with a rather unorthodox question that I was very excited when I learned that for your teaching stuff you critical thinking is like one of my favorite that that's like a like a pain point and like a major thing that i, I just like oh we should teach critical thinking in schools like all throughout it and i wanted to start yeah. with that yeah it's it, it's it i've actually taught specific classes about that but i and really it's into it should be and is certainly here integrated into any rational syllabus um, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're teaching, um, I taught specifically classes about it some years back, um, 
when I was teaching at uh, the New England Institute of Art in Boston, where I started teaching in 2000. Um, but now I uh, run the internship program for the School of Visual and Performing Arts at Endicott College, which is up on the North Shore of Massachusetts, about 40 miles northeast of Boston. Um, so I, we have a really good, strong internship program here. It's pretty much the flagship program for the school. It's been going for 30 odd years, um, the program itself. Uh, and uh, I look after all the arts kids, you know, which includes interior design, interior architecture, uh, graphic design, performing arts, fine art, art therapy, and anything related to that. That's beautiful. And, and that's something that listeners of the show have remarked is uh, a certain level of interest in what folks who are playing these bands and are these artists that, that do when they're not doing that, whether it's after that or during that, you know, yourself, like Martin Atkins yeah, well, is, is another when one. When we grown up, yeah. People say, what are you going to be when you grow up? I, yeah. mean, <laughs> I, I started teaching in 2000 um, and my mother, dear wonderful woman that she is, after 20 odd years, in the music industry um, as a musician and a tour manager and a manager and then an A&R person and a music publisher and back to management. She said, oh, finally, you got a real job at last. <laughs> charming, <was> mum, charming. <laughs> you know, I then I then just said, yes, I, I love it. It's a great gig. I'm, it's a lovely, cool little school in Boston. Um, but my starting salary is the same as my expense account used to be when I worked at Warner Brothers. Sure, yeah. So, you know, gradation of scale. A real job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and, and and the reason why uh, again, it isn't just my interest in critical thinking that I bring that up is because for me Gang of Four is one of those bands that when I was first introduced to your records, uh, it not only musically was uh, adventurous and kind of sparked the imagination in ways of like, wow, I didn't it's interesting that that's kind of jagged and aggressive, but kind of almost funky. Okay, interesting. But certain ideas and ideals like were put forward that not necessarily like this is the way that you need to think, but questioning uh, certain precepts, history, as a for instance. And I, I found that to be very formative as an influence uh, in the way that like the People's History of the United States of America by Howard Zinn is or something along those lines. That It got me, got me personally looking into certain things. And I mean, was that something that you guys had planned from the outset? Was it like, hey, we're going to get real about this or just develop? Well, no, I don't think we approached it that uh, coldly and seriously. I mean, we wanted to be in a band. We wanted to have fun. We wanted to make noise that was appealing and challenging. Um, You know, our early songs were sort of Dr. Feelgood meets punk rock meets Jimi Hendrix meets uh, dub reggae. Um, and I think, it, uh, you know, we had a couple of early songs that were literally about politicians. I mean, there was one called John Stonehouse, which was sort of fun and witty, but it, it just, you know, when you do that, when you say, oh, Thatcher's a bitch, or John Stonehouse <laughs> went for a swim, John Stonehouse, thought he jacket in, you know, as anyone knows from back then, what that's about, you time yourself you're stuck in a particular time. And I think it was more interesting uh, to write things that were less timely and therefore, well, not therefore, 
I mean, one can look back at it and say, and now they and they are timeless. Right. Um, which you know, not being facetious, um, a lot of the things that we sung about, and I, I, I when I say we, uh, John King specifically was the principal lyricist. Yes. Um, if you whoever you hear singing, just about wrote those lyrics. Um, you know, there's an exception to every rule, but that was an absolute rule. I mean, even down to uh, the B side of um, "At Home He's a Tourist." being it's her factory those are my lyrics I, um, I know that that's yours yes yeah i i sang it i wrote it i ran it past john king because i was i didn't trust myself and i trusted john's uh you know careful hand and pen um but no that that's how we did it and john is a very bright thoughtful eloquent man speaking and singing so yeah and and so it occurs to me with the with the by not making something especially timely that yeah you do you do have the opportunity to make it timeless and the fact that somebody can discover those songs in 2021 yeah, that, and, that wasn't the drive we weren't thinking right. more than three six months ahead of ourselves it was just what was interesting what was what made the song gave the song value um you know challenging ideas challenging uh status quo assumptions yeah and yeah, literally the thing. I mean, look, history is being rewritten every day right oh, now. Isn't it the um, isn't it the truth? Yes. You, you, you by one party in the United States, particularly, but also in the UK. I mean, you know, uh, right wing conservative movements have always done that. Yeah, uh, they've always written. You know, even if, well, even if they're very left wing extremist. Um, you know, Pravda, right, <laughs> so yeah. we're writing State history. Media, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you challenge ideas, you challenge assumptions, things you're brought up to believe are the way, are not the way. Um, and it is the politics of our behaviours and thoughts that matter, in essence, far more than the uh, witterings and meanderings of actual politicians, for the most part. And this similar concepts and anti-concepts can will stick around regardless of the of the characters involved and are, yeah. will still be i mean if you think of you know something along the lines of you know you know history is not made by great men like it's that's that's that holds true like you think think about again think about like who's telling who's telling the story who, who's what's what's the narrative that's being created to use modern terms you it's know? Always, you know it's always the victor that writes the history of the war right absolutely um, so yeah and there's we some didn't well i think there's something to be said for ephemerality like you know I, I don't know if you're familiar with the band sleaford mods but they have a fantastic song called bhs which is great and i'm sitting here bopping along singing to it. i'm like what is bhs what is that and then and then like i look it up i'm like oh okay and of course i don't get it because you know i'm i, I live in the u.s and it's you know it's, you're a skeptic yeah yeah and there's something to be said for that ephemerality and being like in the moment. But yeah, I, again, one of the things that I, just strikes me, uh, especially with the first two Gang of Four records, is is just how still otherworldly sounding they are. And I want to speak about that. But that the sentiments kind of somewhat hold true. <laughs> like, you know, let's get drunk on cheap wine, you know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, 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 that's a constant. 
Although, no, not really. I think we've evolved beyond that. Um, it's very much about getting drunk on far more expensive wine these days. Let's <laughs> get, get drunk on, on mid-to-expensive wine, yes. <laughs> I, um, when, we, when we got together to do our um, uh, first proper reunion of the original four in 2000, we got together in 2004, but the thing happened in 2005 yeah. through 2006. Uh, we did um, a nice, quite long interview in a in a restaurant near where we were rehearsing um, in London with um, God, how rude of me I can't remember from the New York Times, um, but he 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 said so. What's been the big difference, Hugo? You know, between then and now, and you know, obviously beyond the fact that it hurt a lot more this time because we were all turning fifty <laughs> as opposed to being twenty three. Um, sure. I said, well. Back then, it was all big bags of blow and um, and gallons of vodka, and now it's fine French white wine and ibuprofen. So <laughs> I will repeat that because I was quite pleased with myself coming up with that off the cuff at the time. It's a killer line. Yeah, you absolutely should. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, a, a little bit less in volume and certainly more in. Uh, quality moderation yeah. the wine we drink <laughs> well and and uh so and you you bring up something that i wanted to talk about which is the the, the return the gift sessions mm -hmm. uh, something that i found very interesting about that is like it was like oh you know and in some cases it's like oh this is like a different version of the song like you know with you know different different production like it hits a little differently but there's also like i think a couple of the, the later songs I find them superior to the, the originals. You know, I, I think uh, uh, "We Live as We Dream Alone" is a great tune, and like you never would know it. Uh, pardon the the, the opinion uh, based on the record because it just it doesn't it's doesn't pop on the record in the way that I think it, it does on that. I mean, on on um, "Songs of the Free." Correct. Yeah, which I, I I do like the "Songs of the Free" record, but I think it's just I, I think the the production on that one seems more of its time. And it was just interesting to me. It made me re-examine a couple of those songs of like, oh, these are quite good. I didn't, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't think yeah, I, I think that record didn't quite get the attention it deserved, but it was quite a shift for us sonically and the way it was put together. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right. When <sighs> Return the Gift was not a, it wasn't as successful or as, well put together and well done as it should and could have been. Um, it took too long, mm. um, was uh, slightly less a product of the four of us working together than the first two albums had been. Um, and I think it suffered from that. Um, and it was, you know, there were certain things going on during the time uh, between us and management and each other. You know, when we were playing together, it was fantastic it was wonderful sure we were having a great time we did a really good job of it you know we when we first had the meeting and then okay we we can do this but we cannot do it in a half-hearted manner you know we had a great reputation yeah. left behind from the early days and we cannot foul the waters there at all we have to be really on top of it and as good if not better and it was you know, as i said it was hard work but it was great and it did work but i think the album um was there was some there were some great bits but it wasn't a great project um the principle behind it was to say okay we can re-record these so that we have the body of work available to us that we can control right. the, uh, yeah, the, the master copyrights yeah. um 
for anyone else who, you know, for sync licenses and all that sort of thing, because um, our original deal with EMI that we signed in 1979, um, we were still very much unrecouped. Yeah. Um, and the royalty rate was low. I mean, it was good for the time when we signed it, uh, when we originally signed the deal with 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 Warner Brothers, with EMI for the rest of the world territory. Um, we signed for very much less money than every other label was offering us right. because we took a, a higher royalty rate for the time and had complete uh, creative control. C-O-M, we had it. Um, they couldn't turn things down because they didn't think it was um, uh, marketable enough, which was part of a lot of record contracts back then. Yeah, we don't really like this single. It's not. We can't play this on the radio. It doesn't matter. Yeah. This is what we want. Um, so, you know, there was a balance, um, but we <laughs> there was a big balance in red left on our account with EMI. <laughs> so whenever there were... Um, Revenue streams from other than just from sales, it was all getting sucked up yeah, by the machine. Any of it, and sure. uh, we yeah. wanted to try to re grab back some control of those issues. So, yeah. Uh, but I don't think it was terribly successful. There were some really good moments. I quite liked the um, uh, the sort of second parts, the second CD of other artists' mixes and yeah. remixes and messing around with, with the masters. Some of those were really interesting and really good. But again, I think it could have been stronger. Well, it occurs to me too. Uh, around that time, I think that was uh, it was mid two thousands, like two thousand five. I think two thousand four, two thousand five. Right? It seemed to me it eventually made its way out in two thousand six. It was supposed to be coming out when we went on tour. Yeah, in yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it, it occurred to me that like again when Gang of Four came back, that there were so many bands that if not if not outright trying to do their version of your thing. Certainly there were a lot of bands that were popping up that were Gang of Four influenced suddenly. It seemed to yeah, be well, suddenly. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a large part of what drove us uh, or encouraged us and the people around us and, you know, people, oh, God, why don't you go out and show them how it's done properly? So that was behind that. That and the fabulous success, you know, in the year or so preceding of the Pixies, who were went out again and said, Christ, to this... <laughs> little band are suddenly making more money than God. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, yes. Know, <laughs> it's nice to be paid for your work. We never, we didn't quite make that level of um, enjoyment. Yeah. But we had a great time and a lot of people were, one of the best things about that whole reunion tour was uh, half the audience were, you know, fat old balding guys in leather jackets um <laughs> but the other half were people in their 20s yeah um it was that was really encouraging i mean it mattered more than just being a retread audience who it was lovely to see and nice for them to get out and you know nobody you know, that half wasn't pogoing because their knees already hurt you know yeah, yeah. employ some babysitters you know all that good yeah. stuff yeah well you know yeah <laughs> i brought my daughter out with us for some of it <laughs> well yeah and that's one of the things that i was kind of driving at with the the timelessness of the music is that I mean, it still hits in a way that there's nothing really that quite sounds like those records that that I can think of. I mean, there are few, certainly there are some corollaries, um, you know, some like-minded folks at other bands that you could maybe oh, yeah. say that to. But they're they're incredibly unique sounding. Were unique at the time and continue to be unique. And I think that the idea that you negotiated for this creative control, as, as you know, rather than taking the payout, 
I think yeah. that's key to that. I mean, I, I'm, the, I can't imagine, <laughs> you know, presenting the record. You know, I'm sure they were they just like, oh, that you're, oh, you're not, you oh, you should do. Oh, okay, well, we said. Okay, right. so when when we gave when we gave EMI entertainment first time, not the NR guy because he was mm-hmm. with us quite a lot and he he was the best person at the label, and that, that's another reason we signed with him because actually, led by uh, Chris Briggs, who it was at the time. Um, there were good people at EMI, and that was another attractive part of the label for us. Yes, they were big. Yes, they were corporate. Yes, some other division of the parent company made weapons or something. But, you know, nobody's underwear is entirely clean. In- <laughs> so we just thought, well, theirs doesn't smell as bad as others. And the people there were good. We had some really good relationships until we walked off top of the pops. And then, of course, a lot of people who were really keen on us were a little bit less keen but that matters and that, that that's an extremely strong reason why we subsequently signed for the united states with warner brothers i mean the the people there were extraordinary yeah. warmer brothers as george clinton used to refer to them as um awesome. and we were signed by you know we were brought in by jerry wexler i mean that alone yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's to tell you something. Sure, yeah. I find out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, just I was rambling. I, I was going to say uh, you, and you brought up the top of the pops appearance, which of course has been uh, no, no, co- co- no, no, it was a non-appearance. Non-appearance, yeah. Uh, it, it's a legendary story within 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 rock and roll, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So if anyone hasn't heard it, I'll I, I was going to say I was trying to find I'm a way sure to free people have. I was trying to find a way to uh, phrase this. It would be interesting to you. <laughs> Top of the Pops in England was the weekly television uh, chart show that we'd all grown up with. It was part of the fabric of living and being in England at the time. Everybody watched it. Um, you know, a bit like American Bandstand, I guess, would be the closest thing. And uh, we were asked to be on because um, the first official single with EMI in the spring of 79, excuse me, uh, at Home is a Tourist was actually going this way up the charts. It's like, oh my God. And they asked us to be on. We said, great, fantastic. Okay. But then it, then the message came back. Well, we don't like this word rubbers. Uh, you need to change it. It's like, I mean, can you imagine now? <laughs> Parents, are, they're begging you to talk about rubbers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At least it's contraception, it, right? It was, it was, <laughs> it was uh, considered uh, very non-you. Um, it was the so we w- said, okay, we'll change it. So we had to go to a studio, and which we had to do anyway, because those were part of the uh, rather arcane musicians' union rules. You couldn't use the original recording because you're replacing live musicians. But being union members, you get the gig. You get the payment for doing it. So we changed it, and we talked about it. It's like, okay, we'll we'll say packets. Same thing, but not an offensive word. So we turned up, and suddenly the producer said, oh, well, we can't have that, packets. That makes it sound like we made you change the words. It's like, yes. (laughs) Well, that's because you did, yes. No, 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 we want you to say rubbish. Um, And to cut a long story short, we refused because that completely changed the meaning. Packets, okay, we'll make the compromise. But to say rubbish, it's like, no. Uh, And they said, well, if you won't, then you'll have to leave. So we in high dudgeon said, we're leaving. And we left and uh, felt fantastic for about a week. And then 
the fallout of um, losing a lot of support from EMI, which, rationally speaking, was fair enough. It's like, we've signed this new band. You know, my God, they could have got on top of the pops. It would have really kicked off, and it would have done. Um, and they walked away from that opportunity. So as the story goes, they said, oh, we got this other new band we just signed. Let's give them the attention instead. Um, Duran Duran. Yeah, yeah. Some young up-and-comers called Duran Duran. <laughs> pickers. They were, they were sort of quite a lot better looking than we were, too. So that worked. Well, but it, but yeah, it occurs to me that that... that 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 decision to stay with the integrity of, of the song and and to keep it like that's that's something that's I found rather inspiring and, and still do. Thank you. <laughs> it. I mean, it, I didn't lose any money from it, but sort of, you know. <laughs> it's sort of a. I won't say a career killer, but it was it was. Um, you know, I do wonder had we thought more rationally about okay, can we find another compromise because it would have been a huge boost to us and would have kept the label on our side. Um, so who knows, you know, I think we did the right thing, but perhaps we could have done a better thing. Um, <laughs> right. And of course, then the next time we put out a single um, uh, for Songs of the Free, I Love a Man in a Uniform. Hey, great. Again, the EMI said, oh, this sounds poppy for you guys. That's we, we can maybe work with this. and. And suddenly it's and suddenly and then Margaret Thatcher declares war over the Malvinas with Argentina, and uh, the BBC are told, "Oh, we don't want anyone talking about bang bang shoot shoot and army and body bags and oh Christ." <laughs> yeah, which, which it which it is one certainly one of the danciest numbers about uh, about such a topic that I can think of off the top of my head. Certainly at the top. Yeah, no, yeah, one of them. Yeah. <laughs> the other one I'm thinking of is like the MIA song that uh, uh, samples the Clash. It's a, that's another good one, uh, which I believe also has, I believe it actually has gunshots as part of the. Uh, for, it's been a while since I've heard that one, but I, I thought that was a, a daring production choice that I that I stand by. But it's a lot easier to do that kind of stuff now because there's other forms of getting the stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so can you tell me? When when did it, so getting together with with the guys and I don't I don't want to get into the full origin story I think you know it's it's very adequately covered in other media including the box set that's, that's the full which story I don't want to get into the the origin story of Gang of Four but when did you what was there a specific song where you're like oh this is quite nice like when you first started playing together that you kind of realized this maybe you're doing something really special like something that that had some weight to it. Hmm. Well, Love Like Anthrax, you realize you're not really following anyone's path. Um, I think that uh, Damaged Goods, when it's when it hit into, um, it was originally quite a lot faster, and it was called Love Not Lust. And then there was just a moment where it's like, no. And, it, and you said, okay, we've, we do have something here. This is far more interesting way to do it, less punky. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I... I we knew we had something pretty early on, something in terms of, oh, not we're going to be important. Although <laughs> I think Andy said when we were recording, I think this is going to be a really important record. <laughs> this, you know, guffawed and yeah, don't, be an, don't be an asshole. <laughs> asshole. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> damn him. He was right. Um, 
it was what we were doing together and how we were doing it that gave us the power to keep at it. And I, I, that sounds weird, but it's like we knew this was worth pursuing because we knew we were doing uh, interesting noises. Yeah. And when we played live, whenever and wherever we could, the reaction from the audiences that grew and grew and grew and grew was um, very rewarding and very strong. Um, and I think particularly when we, you know, we'd done Europe and everything um, and all over the UK. And when we first came to the States in the summer of 1979, probably a week after we'd finished entertainment, um, this was a self-financed tour. We had no record company backing us up. Uh, booked by Ian Copeland at FBI, who, you know, we were probably one of the fourth or fifth band he'd brought over with his... Uh, he, it was FBI, but I think he was still at... Um, the agency whose name escapes me because I'm old and stupid, based down in Macon. Um, uh, it was part of Phil Walden's group. But anyway, um, we came in after the police and Squeeze to the point where we actually picked up the van that Squeeze had dropped off as they left a couple of days before nice. um, and put sugar in the gas tank, um, which has caused another whole story that's been heard a lot of times about breaking down in the tunnel, coming out of New York City on a Friday afternoon in the heat. Um, but um, um, the, the, the audiences weren't sure what to expect because, you know, we were political, we were serious, we had this sort of thing. And the fact that we rocked very, very hard and that we performed very, very hard and aggressively and ferociously and um, blew people's minds. They... Many people were expecting, before the word was in uh, the vocabulary, shoegazing. Um, <laughs> sure, you just play it. We were, that we were the antithesis of that. Um, we, we, you know, we rocked, and that went down very well. So it, it was a gradual thing of when we were, the fact that we got to make a record, that first EP uh, with Fast Product, that was exciting. Hearing yourself on the radio. Whoa, you know, and you know, lots of artists. I'm sure you've talked to certainly of our generation. The first time you hear yourself on John Peel, it's like, oh my god, this is great. And then on Radio One, and then this and that, and suddenly you're on a TV show, and suddenly, you know, you're in a proper van, and you've got flight cases. And I mean, these all sound silly now, but it's like, okay, we've got this far, we've got this far, we can keep doing this. Um, We've got a clue about what we're doing. It, it makes it real in a in a very clear and distinct yeah, way. Yeah, a very visceral way. Yeah. The so so on entertainment. It's such a unique and, and cool record. It's one of those things that I, I think the artwork on it is absolutely iconic and could only be that artwork. But did mm-hmm. you have any idea? Uh, you know, I, I believe. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. I think John designed it, right? The with the, with the cowboy uh, Indian. John did the outside sleeve. I believe Andrew was more um, uh, more behind the inner sleeve, the inside sleeve. Um, John and Andrew, between them, led the visual side of things. Uh, I was not an art student. Neither was Dave. They were good at it. And I'm just like, you know what? I don't need to stick my oar in here because what they do and what they've been doing, I trust and I love. So I don't have to have my opinion on everything. Um, so, yeah, it, 
Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. Did did it, did it match what when you saw it? Were you like, oh, hmm? Did like did it match what your thoughts of the music were? Or did you have anything with it? Was it uh, was it just you know were there anything? Oh, it didn't not match it. It didn't yeah. match it. It's just like wow, that looks cool. But you know, the initial thing of oh, we're not going to have our pictures on the album. Okay, you know, I think damn, what's my mum going to say? Right. But then, <laughs> but then, okay, but then understood and embraced. Why not? We never were. Yeah. Um, not bef- not until after I'd left the band, um, and that again, it's, it's just us. It was important. It's like it's not about the cult of personality, you know. Uh, it's more about the ideas and thoughts we can put across visually as well as uh, musically. And there seemed like there was a little bit of sublimation of self, uh, at least for those for those early records, towards like this greater overall group goal. Yeah, identity. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, we we were sublime on stage. I'm right. punning there. Um, <laughs> again, on stage, it was it wasn't about a guitar hero and a rhythm section at yeah. the back. It was very much four winds, four corners of a whatever. Um, it, yeah, it was an integral partnership. Did you feel that? Were there other bands around at the time that you feel like you had common cause at as far as just like the, uh, you know, be it either aesthetic or approach? Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Whether it's the Mekons or Delta Five, who were our, you know, Leeds partners, or or the Au Pairs, who we played with a lot. And then, you know, other people we toured with, because we, I mean, even there were the bands that were nothing like us that we loved because they were as ferocious and i mean the ruts for instance we yeah. did uh, a rock against racism tour with them that was great um when we came to the states we had you know whether it was pylon or rem um opening for us uh translator other bands but just you know we were lucky we we chose bands that we felt we had something in common with um sometimes musically other times um just because they were fun to be on tour with. You know, let's face it, it, it can be miserable on tour. So if you can introduce other people who, you know, bring some fun to it. Absolutely. And we did have a lot of fun on tour. Did you ever... if you don't, you'll kill yourself. Oh, absolutely. And and I think that there and there's certainly that first generation of bands that kind of listen to you guys. And like I'm thinking of a band like the Minutemen that obviously are iconic in their own right. Yeah, uh, yeah. But you, you can hear... You know certain bits and pieces of of your influence with it was it was that kind of uh was that something that you had to have other people tell you or did you did you know well yeah yourself? i mean sometimes yes yeah. sometimes <laughs> like you know oh who's this the Minutemen? okay i better listen to that and it's like oh cool and then you know quite a lot of bands who we opened doors for and they they tore through and made lots of money and sold lots of <laughs> Um, red hot chili peppers um, yeah, um, good on them <laughs> yeah no absolutely fantastic anyone who can make a living and a good one uh from being in a band is to be um applauded because it's really hard and the odds are so against you um so you know i mean we never made tons of money or sold tons of records but the fact that we're still <laughs> i'm sitting here talking to you now talking right now you know, yeah we'd still maintaining uh, a presence and that's great it's fun rewarding um what, what do you feel how do you feel about the recorded material like and it must have been interesting uh, you know, putting together the box set and revisiting everything uh, modern tastes have changed it's become 
you know, certain things have gone in and out of vogue since then. You know, let be, I, I guess, you know, some some people you know, put out records during the auto-tune era where auto-tune was on everything, you know, that, that trendy kind of thing. But again, the record sounds somewhat timeless. So was it, can you hear it as a music now? Like, I mean, with, with, with the distance between it, meaning that can you hear the records as more than their constituent parts? Uh, I guess is what I'm grabbing at. I don't listen to it today the way I used to early on, which was like, oh, God, I messed up there, or, oh, I wish it was this, or I wish it was a little more that. And there, there were times I really, I, I'd probably said, you know, God, I would have loved entertainment. I would love to have heard what someone like Chris Thomas could have done with it as a producer. But it would have been a very different record. Yeah. Um, I think that I always used to, we used to talk with our sound man at the time, who was a real significant part of the team for a number of years, because we never sounded live the way we did on entertainment. Um, and I, you know, I, I've said previously that I think one of the most successful pieces of recording we did was the Another Day, Another Dollar EP with To Hell With Poverty, because that came closest to the way we sounded live. It was the most honest and true sound in the studio to the way we were live. Um, it's I think, a little different, yeah. Yeah, uh, um, I, I think Songs of the Free got a little closer to it. We we were a little bit more comfortable in ourselves, a little looser. We'd been doing it longer. We felt comfortable with playing in the studio. I mean, I really didn't very much enjoy making entertainment. It was really tough. Um, the studio itself, it was quite a small room, and the control room was up here on the left, and Dave and I were down here. We had to start off, and Andrew was upstairs just laying down a thing for and it, it's like, no, start again. No, start again. It's like, oh, God, this is – I had terrible red light fever. Mm. Um, really quite insecure about my playing at the time. Um, but when we got to Abbey Road, even though, again, the control room was up there, it was a huge – it was the Beatles, you know, Studio 2, a huge room. It was nice to have a, a, a separate producer, Jimmy Douglas, because what he brought was um, an element of, okay, we've got a big brother or an uncle in the room who can work with all four of us. So it wasn't, didn't become uh, any battle of the wills between the four of us. Um, and so I enjoyed that a lot more. And then when we did Another Day, Another Dollar with Nick Lorne, uh, I wished we'd have st kept him to do Songs of the Free um, yeah. because we got him, he got us. He's made some amazing records. I mean, just stuff I've loved ever since, you know, whether it's Public Image or In Excess or any number of Australian acts he's done. He was great to work with. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I, I can't, I, God knows why we didn't stay with him, but. That's, sometimes you just don't have answers to those kinds of questions, but that, it, it is a great I've answers for many questions, <laughs> mate. That, it's quite consistent there. I make up a lot of this as I go along. I think within the gang of our pantheon and we'll, we'll get off of entertainment eventually here but uh anthrax i, I find to be a, a very compelling composition the fact that it utilizes kind of the best attributes of of everyone in a very non-rock band kind of way yeah oh, it's not yeah it's not like a rock band at all i mean it's like some rock bands but it's like the concept and the noise was interesting the contrast between Andrew just being in a very controlled way all over the place and Dave and I are just like yeah keeping it keeping it together yeah no fills <laughs> no change just 
we start, we keep going, and we stop. Yeah. It, 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 it's sort of brave. I mean, a lot of drummers can't do that. And I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else, but it's like it's really difficult just to hold one thing down and keep it there and never to play cymbals and things like that. It's, um, yeah, that's what I, part of what makes it interesting, not doing the same old damn thing all the time. Um, Seems like it would almost love- get meditative after a while, just like you're like the, the locomotive <laughs> going. Whereas where it'd be be easy just to yeah. do fills all over the place. Like that's easy. Doesn't you don't, you don't have to think. It's about easy it. and boring after a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. oh, you know, uh, Billy Cobham never interested me. Simon Kirk did. Simon Kirk, Charlie Watts. You know, yeah. <laughs> they they it was less is more, and in many ways, so much more powerful than pyrotechnic drumming. Um, which I never was that attracted to, largely because yeah. I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bonus bonus points for honesty, but I mean, you developed a style that I mean I've heard emulated many times, and in a way that, uh, again, it's been influential. The band's been influential in so many ways, but in in these subsections of subgenres, it's like a style of drumming now to to to, to do that. Some of these songs, and, and it just occurs to me that. Because yeah, of course, I, well, I don't ha- didn't have to review the records because I still listen to them regularly, which again speaks to the right. quality of the records. But it's different when I'm listening to something I know someone's going to be on the show, and I start thinking about it. I was like, wow, there really wasn't a lot of this. You know, it's almost like craftwork like or something. And it's insistency, like with, with that. You know, it, it's like you know how to flatter a boy. <laughs> <laughs> God, I love craftwork. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's just, it, it, but it's so clearly played by humans as well. And in that same way that, you know, the first, my first, uh, my first take on it, I was like, oh, wow, the rhythm section is almost like James Brown or something. But like the guitar just sounds like broken glass. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could play like James Brown's drummers, but yeah, I, I know, I, and I yeah, okay, I know what you're saying. I mean, I the intersection, what... yeah, between the between the bass and the drums, how and how there was, uh, yeah. first of all, prominence to it, but like an yeah. inter- interlock. We weren't just we were not just marking time. Correct. It was um, in the same way that Andrew wasn't just playing um, uh, melodies or lead breaks. You know that that. Again, not very interesting. Um, right. We were all playing rhythmically. John sang rhythmically. I mean, you know, his percussive work, you know, hitting bits of metal with other bits the of microwave. metal. The <laughs> microwave. Was a microwave. Right? Yeah, which, yeah, which ultimately became a microwave. Yeah. Um, it started off as a That's when metal, I saw you. It was a microwave. And I was a like, piece, of, um, <laughs> piece of scaffolding with some wire, you know, a steel wire in between it and made up by the crew on a... On a but, yeah, and then it was a washing machine lid and... But uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure when the microwave came in originally. But once it was, it, that's yeah, clearly you, the thing. No yeah. going back from the microwave. <laughs> well, and it, it occurred to me like when when I didn't see you guys, uh, who I was there with was like was like, oh, do they do this every show? I'm like, I don't know, but I would imagine they're hitting something because it's in the song. Like you can hear it. <laughs> it was on the it was on the rider. <laughs> every club had to provide. You know, it's like you know, send a runner out to the local. Sh- you know, whatever store, and you know, yeah, just yeah, a use, store. it doesn't have to work. You know, <laughs> just, just has to be the hit. scrapyard and get one. And then, of course, <laughs> later on, you know, we'd have uh, when you could do that. We some of our lighting guys would do, set up little lights inside it and yeah. stuff like that. Give, give it a little more. Then, you know, and then a couple of times when he'd be hitting it in the glass would break out. So, like, oh, maybe we need to put some gaffer tape on the inside. Yeah. We don't want to hurt anybody. Um, but it's it's wonderful theatre. 
And I think it's another thing that we we really got and did well was the theater of performance, you know, without having to have a guillotine like uh, Alice Cooper, <laughs> the wonderful and brilliant Alice Cooper. Um, uh, it was absolute theater in the way we played off against each other um, and the way people moved around the stage or stalked each other or, you know, the tension. I mean, you you look at the, when, when we recorded that, um, he'd send in the army for the Urga music war. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, and there's another, there's a great video, uh, one of our appearances from the old gray whistle test that's on YouTube. And it's all, it, it, yeah. is he going to touch it? You know, um, will he hear, won't he? <laughs> and these things would go on when we were on on stage and it's just like okay who's gonna who's gonna go for who's gonna break first yeah. <laughs> how long can we keep the silence or the sort of is it you is it me you know <laughs> it was great well and it occurs to me also that uh, and getting back getting back to the microwave the hottest topic of the entire episode is that it, it well, there was a sense of danger name me one other band that plays the microwave exactly and there's an element of like uh, of like you know i would call now it, you're talking that now you're talking unique okay yeah, it's a what it's a wtf moment it's like what the uh, and then like yeah but it's there's an uncertainty to it there's a like what is going to be happening here right now and it added to the da- dangerous element even as you know, not as young men as as you were. Like everybody channeled their performance in, in different ways, and it, it it just occurs to me that I was like, wow, it, that's still unique, and it's it's kind of like making a political statement, but it's also just, yeah, again, it's Alice Cooper with the guillotine, but in a much more pick and save sort of manner, and uh, you know, I, I value that. Uh, and then I, you you brought up Urger Music War, which uh, I had a note upstairs to ask you about. I was, I mean, was that, did, did you have an idea of what that was going to be? Like when, when that was filmed, the Urger music war stuff? Oh, uh, no, it was, it was, it was a Miles Copeland thing. Um, so it was one great big idea. We'll get all these people to it. What infuriated me was, uh, we never got to see any other song. And we, we probably filmed four or five songs that night. Oh, um, we had no input. We had no, nobody ever showed us the other filming, which really upset me because there's so comparatively little uh, cinematic record of Gang of Four back yeah. in the day. You know, we never made any damn videos. Um, our, our lighting guy um, back in the day used to haul around a, a big old VHS camcorder and those have gone missing, uh, which is really sad because there's a lot of great B-roll. I mean, the, the, there's an amazing... Uh, documentary for the uh, 1800 people around the world that might care but it's <laughs> somebody's got them in a box somewhere you know yeah. between then and 2005 we did a lot of filming in 2005 as well um but again that's never really seen the light of day um and there's some great stuff um but uh now of course i've lost my thread complete oh uh, the music war yeah it's I a hit sending the army or, i think is the song yeah down there. um and it, that was great yeah. Although you could see we were a little sort of, you know, a little bit out of it. <laughs> um, and Dave slightly messed up the vocals, but nobody knew because we still did it with a plum. Right. <laughs> it's like a plum and you look hard no. enough at the audience. It's like, I just made a mistake, but you don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> Force of will almost, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The only people who knew it were the crew who'd sort of give us sideways glances. Yeah, you bugger that up. <laughs> The uh, and and so of course he's in the armies on the excellent Saul Gold record, yep. which 
has one of my favorite opening songs of any record ever, which which is uh, Paralyzed. Like, I think that that's a bold way to open a record for any era. But around around that time, it kind of seemed like everyone was going exactly the opposite. One of Andrew's finest moments. Yeah. It's easy to point to Anthrax because it's of course. all that. But Paralyzed, uh, again, uh, the power of tension um, and his strongest lyrical moment. Yeah, it's a powerful song. Fantastic song and great to play, even though it's all very sort of controlled. You know, it's like... Every hit matters, though. Every hit's like where... Every hit matters, but it's like... (laughs) And I'm not going to compare myself to... um, uh, to the Temptations, but I'm now going to. I mean, the beginning of Papa Was a Rolling Stone. When I used to teach music classes at my first college, um, it was always uh, the freshman class, uh, first meeting, I'd come in and I'd have it all set up in the class. I'd just walk in and I'd just put it on and I stand there and just look at them all, one at a time, and they were just what the? Because this was a, a class of music students, of recording students, of people who wanted to go into the industry and be. And um, I just, you know, I finished it and I said, "So, what's the song that makes the hair on your neck stand up? What is the song that make you realize I want to do this?" Mm. And they're like. And that was the first paper, you know, why, why are you here? And then, you know, we're getting into talking about recording. It's like, I keep going, about, you know how many tracks that was done on? Right. Do you, mean, do you know how long that loop was? And they guess, there was no bloody loop. <laughs> they were great musicians playing in the yeah. same room on a two or a four track recording, you know, maybe eight, I don't, you know, two four track machines, but just to con- do ding. Almost has the feeling like you're sitting in front of the drum set while you're hearing it yeah. or something, right? Like you're yeah. right there. I, I, you know, it was, it was it was a good way to introduce the way I taught them about the history of rock and roll. Um, you got to know where you've been to know where you're going. I think. So Certainly. Um, yeah, it's help, helpful. <laughs> uh, did you uh, the and I feel like Solid Gold is, is lionized as well in the catalog, but maybe doesn't sometimes quite get the headlines that entertainment gets. No, it doesn't. And it should, because it's every bit as strong a record and and, and very definitely a move up and forward, um, which is not to compare the two, but it's like, we didn't repeat ourselves. We didn't want to, we specifically avoided doing that. Um, And again, I think it, it sounds like we own ourselves and have more confidence in our playing. There's an assurance um, I, to it. I love the record. Yeah, like, like, like it's and well, in entertainment, it's almost like that. That the the tension, <laughs> in in many ways, uh, are, are prevalent and make it an interesting record. But there's a there is an authority to Solid Gold that's uh, it's interesting and and it hits in a way that. Speaking personally, like I I always was. Oh, entertainment's a record, but now I was like, oh, maybe it's Solid Gold. Maybe that's the one I like better. You know, between, <laughs> between the two of them. I mean, you know, picking your favorite well, and, child and playing live. I mean, what we all want is probably my favorite song to play live because that is that that, that you know it's relentless. It's, it's great. Chili Peppers wish they could bring the fun <laughs> like that. 
You hear that, Flea? I say that with love in my heart. Of course, really, of I mean, course. And just relentless. It was fantastic. Well, I'm going from paralyzed to that, too. It's just it's like, yeah. oh, wow, the many moods of Gang of Four. Okay, here we go. Let's let's <laughs> dig in. Sure. Uh, did you... Oh, um, wasn't uh third song, uh, Y Theory? What that was a uh, the the sequencing is like different on, on like a like a um like the UK version. I saw this once and actually I didn't see it. I had it played for me once. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not where I remember that being. Yeah, I, okay. So this came up when we were doing the box set um, about a, a, a possible schism in the sequencing between what and. The answer is, I have no clue. <laughs> I cannot remember. I don't remember the difference or what happened. Maybe it was a re-release by Warner Brothers one year or when it yeah. went, uh, when it was re-released um, by Henry Rollins, um, you know, some years in the 90s or whenever it was. Um, excuse me. Um, I've got no bloody idea. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I, I just had, had that... Uh... You know the the, the Baron. Are you familiar with this? It's like an internet thing. The Berenstain Bears and the the spelling of it and that. Yeah. Oh God, don't I know? Yeah, I've been through. <laughs> I had, I read those books to my daughter, and then someone says, "Oh, it's actually this." And it's that. It's, oh God, here pa- we go. Parallel universe theory, whatever. I definitely had a moment of like, I don't remember this beat. This is solid gold, yeah. right? Like, it's just like something. Yeah. Okay. Well, so here's his. Okay. When we uh, remastered from the original masters yeah. for the box set that were at Abbey Road, um, that John oversaw, but you know you couldn't go there, COVID and everything else. Um, and somebody brought this up on one of those uh, Anorak websites where they go through record releases, like you know, with a fine tooth comb. So the intro is missing to. Um, Dig, dig, dig. It's like, what do you mean? It's like, and then I listen. I actually, I open up my box set and put the vinyl. I say, Christ, where did it go? And John and I had this, and we suddenly realized we called um, the mastering engineer at, at Abbey Road, and he said, Well, it's not there. There's a file with that. Oh, okay. I found another file with that on it. We added that at the last moment. It wasn't on the original recording. So, in fact, the Anorex got the real original. Wow. Wow. Okay. The beginning of Essence Rare. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. That'll 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 be a joke we can make on stage if we ever play live again. Do you want the intro or not? <laughs> intro version or no intro version? I want the intro. I don't want the intro. Are you mad? The intro's great. <laughs> it is a really good intro. That's what's so funny about that. Is you know, and I just and it's, suddenly it was one of those head in hands moments of oh god, we fucked up again. <laughs> but it is actually authentic, yeah. and authenticity is what we were going for. Is that backpedaling or what? No. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, well, and it, it just occurs to me, and I, I, full disclosure, I still need to pick up a copy myself. But the, uh, the, the box. Yeah, I, I'd love to say I'd send you one, but it's not 1980 anymore, <laughs> where there are 600 copies in a in right. a record company closet for throwing around. It's and there there were. You better hurry if you want one. I, I'm not I know, being rude, I, but I, we only manufactured uh, 3,000 numbered copies, um, and what and the label, what matter of sold out already? It's like. Bugger, we should have made four thousand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, 
it's like we all thought yeah we're gonna have five each and it's like i got three or two or something it's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, well, but, but yeah, but, no, it's, it's a fabulous piece. So yeah, you can tell Wait, the attention, up, maybe. The, the the love and care that went into it is is pretty noticeable. I mean, like the fact that it like, took a long time. John yeah. and I, we were talking about it all through the summer of 2019, um, having gone through the process of getting all our master copyrights back from Warner Brothers. Um, in there lies a tale, um, and we wanted to do it. We really started in earnest around about the beginning of September um, of 2019. Uh, authenticity and honesty being the watchwords for how to do this. Um, and it was, it was really John's project. I mean, this was his thing. He went, uh, I was a very uh, hardworking lieutenant, um, not least because, well, because I just I can't not be involved in all these things, but also I had boxes and boxes of ephemera and crap that I've been carrying around the yeah, world. What are you waiting for? Yeah. For 40 years. It's like, you know, oh, look, here's this, here's this beer mat with a cowboy and an Indian sharing a glass of beer together. And somebody had written, look, hang on four and given it to me in 1979 or 1980. It's like, oh, I've always kept it. It's like, great. We can put that in the book. Yeah. Stuff like that. I mean, it was, we poured through so much stuff. Um, uh, and I spent a lot of time uh, finding old photographs and uh, scanning them all. I mean, it was a monstrous amount of work we did, John particularly. Um, and then Andrew died um, when we were sort of not yet halfway through it, but when we'd really already got going. Um, and then COVID. Now, I was just, it was a very, um, it actually, focusing on the box set helped us through you know, uh, a difficult year. Yeah. I mean, it was difficult for everybody and more difficult for many other people, but it kept us focused together on what we were doing. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. It gives you something to, to, to work towards and, and to create and, and keep you on track to, uh, yeah. I mean, the whole point was, it was going to be the 40th anniversary release of, and, you know, to match entertainment, Although we sort of missed that by the time it was ready and, uh, you know, we were thinking we should go out and tour and, you know, Andrew, COVID and all this sort of thing. Yeah. So um, we, we may still do that. Was it a sore point when Andy was running around with his band doing uh, doing his shows? Okay. Um <laughs> You want my opinion, I can't speak for the others quite, but I will tell you my feelings is that once John left in 2012 or 13, it really was no longer um, Gang of Four. Um, I was happy for Andrew that he was continuing to go out and tour and play. It was great. But in all honesty, it you know, it's semi-joking. I thought, well, why isn't he going out as the Andy Gill experience or, or Gang of One? Gang of One. Yeah, I said that's, that's, that might have been what I said when I saw him. Yeah, well, yeah. I've DJed as Gang of One over the last decade or so. <laughs> but anyway, um, it, uh, but uh, um, there was an interview Andrew said at one point when somebody asked him about that. And he said, well, you know, it doesn't even need me to be authentic Gang of Four. And it's like, well, oh, Gang of Four. It's like, okay, you said it, mate that means we can do something 
as hard and as difficult and as as it could be without Andrew, but Andrew was a brilliant performer. Was great. Yeah. It was. I went. I came. Went to see him with the. Uh, at, you know, with the um, three kids who were playing with him um, when they came to Boston the first time without John. And you know, it was charming and nice. And but it just felt weird when I, when sure. whenever they came when it was John and Andrew together. I'd always go. We'd always hang out. It was good. You know, they'd ask me to come and play a couple of songs. Um, so it, it just, yeah, I had no, I, I, it would have been ungracious to say, you shouldn't be doing this or to be public saying, oh, this isn't right. That would have been ungracious. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> if one can do it, then three can do it. <laughs> Certainly. And, and well, and it's, you know, the, the, the sort of rock and roll circus ridiculousness of, version of that would be like when Sweet there was like the guitarist version and the bass player's version, and they were both on tour in different areas at the, at the same yeah. time, which is like, okay, guys, come on. Uh, well, but then you've got Dr. Feelgood with none of the original members. Right. But <laughs> they are, they're, I went to see them once, and it was yeah. like, Still hell, this is on. But they're, they're really good at what they do. It's not my Dr. Feelgood. Right. But they're keeping the whole thing going and keeping it alive, and um, and the Stranglers. I mean, oh yeah, is there anyone left? I mean, when I saw them three or four years ago when they came to Boston, um, I think Jet. I don't think Jet Black was in it, but Dave Greenfield was, still was. Um, so there was a degree of authenticity. Um, but you know what? Anyone especially of our advanced years who's still out doing it and doing it seriously and properly. Good on you. Yeah. Good on you. Absolutely. And that's how I feel about it. You know, jokes, jokes aside, it's like, Oh, that's awesome. You know, good for, good for them. That's, that's fantastic. And I do think it's uh, the idea, the idea of there being like some gang of four activity, you know, in in a, in a uncertain future that we have, that's awesome. Although it is, you know, how do you even begin? Obviously, you're not going to be able to replace Andy. There's no, there's no way. But to get someone that would do the thing and add something to it, uh, you know, that that's that's a tall order. That that's that's a tall, tall order. I, I'm sure you're aware. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that that's that's a possibility? Though, is what it sounds like. Is that something that in the future could happen? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> I, I, I I'm on board. I'll I'll go see it. Damn right you will. <laughs> I mean, I'd go see the bass player's version of Sweet at this point. I want to see any show, but like, <laughs> yeah. But I I mean I'm I I would lo- I would love to see that. I think I think the world could use that. If that you know, not to sound hyperbolic, but it's what I do. And I'm not being I'm not being cute. Um, that is absolutely our intention and. Uh, you know, we're not, we're, we're, we're doing, there's more than just talking about it right now, but, but that's it for now. Fair. <laughs> Fair. Can't, can't, can't spill all the beans. We will, we will approach it the same way we approached uh, the reunion touring in 2005 and six. Yeah. We're doing this properly. We're doing this seriously. We're um, giving it everything we can to do it as well as it's ever been done. Did you find, going through all the ephemera for the box set and all the memories 
uh, going through all that, did, did you find it sparking different things that you're like, oh, I you know, forgot about that? Or like, oh, you know, that that was on this this time where we played, you know, with this, you know, this, this, this the, um, the flashbacks <laughs> of, of different yeah, parts of life. I, okay, so that was, a, that was a lovely part of, for John and I, particularly putting it all together, um, of reaching out to people again, of talking to people who, you know, graciously and kindly sent us stuff or gave us stuff. Um, photographers, we, we found as m- almost every photographer whose pictures we'd had and, you know, put a lot of time and energy into finding people so we could give proper credit and, and pay them um, uh, for the stuff we put into the book. Um, old fans, old mu- other musicians. It was lovely. And looking at a lot of the pictures, I mean, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been, a, a, as with almost any band that lasts more than 15 minutes, there's been bad blood over the years and unhappiness and bad behavior. Um, uh, but what was lovely was to see how, you know, in photographs and things, how much we really, well, John said it, how much we loved each other. We fought hard, but we fought for as well as with each other. Uh, we, we, we were really, it was a special, special thing we had, um, even when parts of it were going wrong. Um, so that was, that was lovely. That and, uh, good God, I must, that looks like I had a 32 inch waist. I don't remember that, you know, <laughs> um, Andrew used to call me fat. It's like, fuck off. No, I was a skinny bugger. Not as skinny as Andrew, but you know. By comparative analysis, yeah. Well, it almost it almost seems like I think the phrase now is somewhat overused, but like a band of brothers, right? Like a, a, with with all yeah, other tales. Yeah. yeah, band of brothers just with fewer bullets. <laughs> well, and in the in the way that brothers can factionalize and uh, you know, form alliances yeah, I, against each yeah, other. Yeah, well, I mean, I I'm I'm the eldest of five. I have three brothers and you know, over the years you, you fight, you come back together, you laugh, you you have a language and a shared experience that no one else has. Um and you know, you have so that was very much a part of those first you know, late 76 to or 77 to 81. Um, that was an extraordinary, extraordinarily intense time of shared experiences. Uh, and you cannot lose those. If you lose those, you've lost your essence uh, of everything. Um, so we were very lucky to have that. Uh, and I, you talk to many musicians who have had that sort of relationship sure. long enough. They'll say the same thing. And if, if they're lucky, I mean, you know, we were lucky. Well, and it's there. There is a certain bond that's formed with a band that is unlike any other. You know, it's not your 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 family, your coworkers, your conscripted, <laughs> like all of, all of those yeah, things. I, I, th- I think if you go to war with a bunch of people, you probably <laughs> form some quite tight bonds. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, did did uh, how did there's no easy way to approach this, but how did you get the news of Andy's death? How did we get it? Yeah. I actually first heard he was sick um, from one of our old lighting designers who uh, lives and works in New York and had stayed very friendly with Andrew um, after it, you know, he, after John left and everything, um, who we first brought into the uh, family family, uh, when we were doing our reunion touring in 2005, and he said something, and I said, what, what? Um, and then very soon thereafter, 
discovered from uh, other friends that he was in hospital and was really very unwell. Um, it was it was odd and difficult to uh, know how to react from such a distance. Um, it was very sad. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he was not he was not healthy person. Um, you know, he'd been unwell for many years, one thing or another. So uh, whatever it was that uh, caused him to pass away, um, I suspect his constitution wasn't as sturdy against it as many other people might have been. But 63, 4, whatever, it's far too young. Yeah. But it, it was very sad as much as we might have fallen out as much as i might have been the only one who talked to everyone else uh because you know we always have continuing business um yeah it was tough i felt very sorry for i don't feel sorry for him he's dead he doesn't you know <laughs> what i feel for, but you know i felt particularly no, sorry yeah. for his brother martin who we'd known back in the day and things yeah. like that you know yeah it's tough because you know when when people who people are in our lives in whatever capacity when they leave you know it, it's a you you can tell the impact they had when when they're gone because mm-hmm. there's just some gigantic thing that's missing and uh, that was definitely the one that I never met the man but I was devastated <laughs> when I yeah. heard the news. No, and you know, you know, I I wish I could have been um in london to uh share in uh his memorializing um i wish yeah but anyway and i'm sorry that that's it's a mass it's a massive no, no. bummer Listen, but it's... this is this is a significant part of the history of this band of brothers for want of a better expression um that continues to this day and it was uh it, it was a blow to um it was a blow to a lot of people and uh yeah i you know i don't know what else to say really well you, you don't have to you've, you've said plenty and, and i and I, th- I thank you for being so open about that uh let, let's and and i want to also want to thank you for spending so much time with me this this has been awesome uh a few, oh. a few more things is there any gang of four song that you can think of that just you know maybe everyone in the band loved it and it didn't hit the way you uh, thought it would, or maybe it was one that you're like, ah, yes, this one, this, this is the one that's, this is the firecracker. This is, people are going to love this one that just, well, I thought hell with poverty really should have just cleared the decks left, right center. Um, Cause it was so strong and so good, but you know, I, I feel like, Every single we put out should have been bigger. Right. We thought it was the all one. Of, all of I mean, them. Yeah. You know, the, the tourist thing, you know, Christ, we're going to be on Top of the Pops. And it's like, yeah. growing up at our age, that was everything. Top of the Pops was it. Yeah. Um, I do like to remind people that since then, I'm the only one that's ever been on Top of the Pops. <laughs> I was on Top of the Pops with Public Image Limited, with ABC, and with Samantha Fox. Um <laughs> Man, that, that covers a wide I was range. Say, a wide berth, yeah. <laughs> well, and 
not to put too fine a point on it, but you're now the uh, the third the third person I've had on the show that's been involved in the psychedelic furs world uh, that I have not spoken at all about the psychedelic furs with. Uh, so <laughs> the other one, of course, being mutual friend uh, Patrick Ferguson and uh, Phil Calvert of the birthday party. Well. Yeah, um, Patrick played a tour with them because they had actually asked me to play with them on that tour. And uh, that was the year my dad got sick and passed away and I just couldn't cope with anything like that. So I just had to say, I'm really sorry. I'm really excited about this. And, you know, Richard and I are quite close and I, I, I love the band. And um, But I said, listen, I can't do this, but I'll, I'll tell you somebody who can, who's great. And that was Patrick who is a terrific drummer, solid as a rock, really, you know, he knows how to be on the road with anybody. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> they've they've come at me a couple of other times since and said, so what are you doing this summer? It's like, oh, I'm working or I'm this, you know. Yeah. Um, great band. Lovely people. Richard is one of the world's fun- and great, fucking brilliant, excuse me, brilliant artist as well. Um, Do you ever play much these days like not meaning not getting a four stuff but you keep up with playing drums i play not as often as i want to but my kit my original premiere resonator kit that was custom made for me by premiere is in the studio just around the corner my building is the vpac visual and performing arts center we have uh, a large theater a black box theater a rehearsal room and a recording studio and my kit's up there all the time so when i I'm in the mood or when I get frustrated, I need to hit something. I, <laughs> I go into the studio and play and I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm rehearsing. I'm rehearsing. It's great. But do I play with other people? Not really. You know, I'm not that sort of drummer. Do you still have that? Do you still have that drive? And the reason why I ask is because uh, I was speaking to Greg Norton from Who's Who and he's talked about how for a, a solid, I can't remember the interval, but it's like 12 years, 15 years, something. he just didn't play bass at all. He just you know, got into he learned I, to cook. I didn't play drums for many years. I mean, I'd sit in, the, you know, when I was doing A&R, um, you know, once or twice, a couple, couple of the acts I signed. I mean, I signed Michael Bean from The Call to his first solo deal uh, when I was working for Quincy Jones at Warner Brothers. Um, and he had, he, had, he had me and Dave come and play on one of the tracks. It was great fun. And then I was in the video with him nice. and another – fantastic little band uh called um um so fantastic i can't remember the name after them uh tenderloin from kansas city um who were like the sort of midwestern skinny punk rock version of dr feelgood although the singer wasn't so skinny he was about 300 pounds and <laughs> fantastic wow. uh ernie Locke. he played mouth harp he played uh harmonica like oh, no okay fat white boy should be able to play he really <laughs> really had the blues and he was such a great performer uh where was it in st louis it was a music festival i went to when i was doing a and r you know you go from club to club and i was just walking past them and i heard this noise it's like mother of god what's that i walked in and there they were and people were going mad these three skinny boys you know guitar bass and drums and ernie at the front you know Greaser hair, sweat playing off him, shirt off, and he had this thing where he'd get pennies and he'd put them in his rolls of fat and pop them out to the audience. <laughs> and every woman in the crowd was going mad. I just, okay, I got to get a piece of this. So I signed them to a little deal and we made a record and it was great fun. And you know, I played with them a couple of times wow. you know, when they came through LA. But other than that, no, I didn't play drums for years. Um, I've still got three 
drunkards, Christ, you know, <laughs> and too many snare drums. I really have to sort of start lightening the load a little bit. But I'm, I, I will never sell my original Premier kit. Plus, I want to go on the road with it. Right, I was gonna say, it's, 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 if you got future plans, you really don't want to. Yeah. No, no. no. As much as anyone said, oh, you should be doing so. When we did the reunion in 2005, they were saying, oh, you, you know, we can't afford for you to bring your, your drums over from America because the first few months were in Europe. I said, okay, well, you know, you got it premiere this and the other. Said, well, nobody does that. You have to use Drum Workshop or whatever they've got. And it's like. Ugh. It's part of my thing. It's your thing. Is, it's your deal. Uh. So, and I went onto eBay and looked them up for Premier Resonators. And that very day, there was a, two new listings. Oh, wow. Bev Bevan's, some of his old Premier Resonator kits, right? Bev Bevan from the move and electric like yeah, yeah, yeah. But the move, you know. And I bid and, <laughs> and I won. And it was just like, whoa, this is great. They were they brought them down. I think he brought it down to my mum's house or something. And and then uh we got them up to Andy's studio where we were rehearsing in 2005 and just yeah i had to sell them eventually because my mum wanted them out of the barn it's like oh please <laughs> but it was a great kit and it was me and it was authentic and yeah, yeah so that's that's great well it's, i was actually just i was just talking about the move the other day that's a that's an underrated band in music history i think oh please it's like there are so many great bands from our youth growing up that some people in the States have never heard, or they a few people have heard, or they came once on tour and they maybe had one hit. I mean, you all know Bad Company, but too few people know Free other than All Right Now. Right. And that was not <laughs> the best thing they ever did. The rest of that album is as good or better. Free were brilliant. Um the sensational Alex Harvey band in one U.S. tour. They were, you talk to any English musician of my generation, and at one point they said, oh, yeah, I used to see Alex Harvey at this and that and the other. And it's like, you know, all these people, I, you know, I, a dear friend, Paul Ferg, big Paul Ferguson from Killing Joke, um, the drummer. You know, I've known each other for years. I actually signed a band of his when I was at Island Records in New York. And, I mean, we just bonded over Alex Harvey band. Um, so, uh, you know, Oh, I can think of any number, but the move, people like that, never really clicked it here. But uh, if you know it, you know how brilliant it is. Roy Wood, you know. You just reminded me that they have a uh, one of these, one of these many streaming things. I couldn't even tell you which one it's on. But there's an ACDC, Bon Scott era ACDC thing, and there's a British show that they took the spot of a sensational Alex Harvey band, and the host not only is clearly sad that Alex Harvey band is not going to be there, but kind of gives them like a bit of a cheeky intro, if you will, about being like, Oh, we'll see what they can do. And there's some feedback or something. And and he's like, Oh, that that must be part of the show or whatever. And they just absolutely proceed to tear the place apart. Yeah. Like, just yeah. tear it apart. Like of, of just, of just like, Oh, you really look, <laughs> you kind of look like a bit of like, like a, like a jerk now, buddy, <laughs> because that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, no, there, there are, there are, vid- there are some videos of, Saab, Sensational Alex Harvey Band around that people should really check out because they were quite extraordinary. Went to a lot of those shows. Did you enjoy doing A&R? Was that something that Loved overall? It. Loved it. Had a great time. Never sold anything. Never signed anything that sold. But everything I signed, I loved and stand by and still listen to today. Um, I had a great time. Uh, I worked with some good people. Um, yeah. 
nine years, I think nine years from my first A&R gig was at Island Records in New York. And then my last one was EMI Music in uh, Los Angeles. Um, yeah, it was a good time. Made some good friends, worked with some good people. Yeah. Did you learn anything new from being on that side of the, of the business? Um, yeah, I learned uh, how awful some of the machinations of the industry are. Um, but I, I think, I hope I taught people more than I learned. You know, whether it was other young managers or musicians, it's like I was quite lucky in that I could go into the studio and not be made to feel or not make them feel like, oh, here's the bloody record company guy, you know, because they know I'd done that. I'd been on that side of it. I think that that, that helped me um, definitely connect and have some authenticity with the musicians. You know, they trusted me to play the real tapes when I came into the studio. Uh, It wasn't just about marking time until I bought them dinner, which (laughs) which was definitely the way a lot of NR people... Look, there were some great NR people, absolutely, you know, and there were some horrors, but (laughs) we had a lot of fun. The... Again, and, and I say this as someone that doesn't own a copy of it, but I've seen a friend's copy, and I'm going to pick one up. Uh, the box set's extraordinary. I think you've got everything to be proud of. It's, Thank uh, you. For for an iconic and legendary band, I think it's, a, it's absolutely fitting to have something iconic and legendary for the people that want it. It is a great piece of, it's a great piece of work. It it's, really is. I'm, we could not be prouder of it. Is there anything you'd like? Other, other, than, other than missing the intro to Essence Rare. <laughs> but it's authentic. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like folks to know about the box set that we, that we didn't cover? or that? I mean, Not you... really. I mean, it's, you know, it's beautifully put together. The book is extraordinary. 100-page hardcover book. Um, the, uh, you know, the little envelope in the back of the of the book with you know rejection letters from labels it's <laughs> it's a lot of fun you can spend a lot of time sitting and going through it um and yeah we're very happy i mean it's you know i'm come out at not just not soon after um pylon's box set that's yeah, another that beautiful a great one. yeah 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 absolutely yeah. Um, so thrilled for them uh, and it was very uh, gracious of them to ask me and john to write something for their book as well so um yeah you know that was those things those sort of relationships that have lasted to this day uh, another great part of our good fortune from being in the band i mean we we made relationships with other musicians or just people that remains this day so that's good did you have a relationship with the Run the Jewels guys before they? Oh, nope, absolutely not. Dave, I think, was the first person who hooked up with them when they went through Portland. He lives in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. And uh, he said, uh, ELP, ELP came up and said, oh, dude, you're the guy. Oh, I really. And then suddenly it's like, they do? Wow, great. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, to be. Um, have him say such wonderful things about our music and how much it affected him. Uh, yeah, thank you. I'll take it. Yeah, not bad, right? <laughs> yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. And Frank Ocean uh, sampling oh, us right. and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, you know. Long may that last. Well, I, I encourage anyone yeah. who sells a lot of records to sample Gang of Four <laughs> continuously <laughs> and forever. To Hell with Poverty can be the next one because that's the... Yeah, the, To Hell with Poverty. I have a daughter in college. <laughs> uh, Hugo, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me. I have, I have one... I'm, I'm, 
I'm delighted to be here. It's been fun. Uh, again, not to put too fine a point on it, Gang of Four is one of my favorite bands of all time, if you can't tell. So it's a it's a huge honor for me, and thank you so much for doing it. Uh, last thing, it's a it's a it's a can question. It's the only can question I ever ask people. You can choose to interpret it however you like, but why do you do what you do? Because I want to have fun. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> Hugo Burnham, thank you so much, man. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
blinker. Paralyzed. Flat on my back. This our world is built with endeavor. That every man is for himself. Wealth is for the one that wants it. Paradise. If you can earn it. History is the reason. I'm washed up. That was none other than Gang of Four. It's Gang of Four Block. Uh, highly recommended you get that box set from Matador. Yeah, To Hell with Poverty. Damaged Goods. Paralyzed. Hugo Burnham. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. That was a blast. I hope you guys enjoyed that. This thing on. Go follow Gang of Four on Instagram. There's an official Gang of Four, but I think the actual one you're supposed to get hold of is a different one that I probably could have looked up before I started talking, which is Gang of Four 7781. So follow that one. Matador Records for the box set, which is absolutely amazing. Name of the show is Conan Neutron's Protonic Reversal. Thank you so much for listening to it. The show airs live on Radio Nope, Thursdays, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific. Say yes to Nope. Tonicreversal.com for the archives. I've got 50,000 watts of power. No ads, no sponsors, no kidding. If you like the show and want to get an episode sooner, patreon.com slash Reversal. One dollar a month will achieve that goal, and it also helps support the show. This Thanks for listening. 
250 coming up. Can you hear me now? Stay safe out there. Out on Route 128, dark and and take it easy. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the, it's the end of radio. The last announcer plays the last record. The last what? Leaves the transmitter. Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now? If there's no one there to receive It's the end of radio 
close of our broadcast day. Got my radio. somehow managed to anyway not that, you, not that that's any concern of yours but it's i'm knackered how are you <laughs> very well very well nice to meet you.